Now it's it's officially on the record. <laughs> the demeanor changes completely. Absolutely. Yeah. Remember remember all those uh, things I said about certain groups of people before we started recording? <laughs> yeah. What about them? Well, can't I can't expand anymore? Can I? <laughs> This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Collar, I'm joined by a very clever and insightful stand-up comedian, cartoonist, and writer. You may have heard him on CBC's The Debaters, or Sirius XM Radio, you may have seen him in a variety of tape performances on CBC, The Comedy Network, and Crave. His cartoons have been published in The New Yorker. He's even sold cartoons to acclaimed documentarian Ken Burns. You can check out his two single-panel cartoon books, Slinky Hell and I Can't Believe We Had to Die Just to Make This Pointless Book. He has a forthcoming full-length comedy album entitled Horsepower. It was recorded right here in Vancouver at Yuck Yucks. I had the pleasure of attending the live taping at a time, of course, when it was safe to get together and do that sort of thing. He is Jacob Samuel. Jacob, how are you? Hi. Hi, Mo. (laughs) I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I have two comments about that intro. Sure. The first is that initially I was like, clever and insightful. That's so flattering. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's from my bio. <laughs> like, I told you that. I didn't even um, I didn't even hit the thesaurus for that one. I'm like, these yeah. words are fine. It's it's fine. Uh, and also, um, I'm, I'm glad that you found out about the Ken Burns thing, which is just a sort of a funny story because it turns out that like Ken Burns, I mean, great documentary filmmaker, one of my favorites. But if you draw cartoons of Ken Burns and then send them to him, he'll probably buy them. Is that what you did? I, um, well, I, I have known that he's, he kind of collects, I know he's bought from other New Yorker cartoonists, like mm-hmm. when people do cartoons about him. And um, I, I did a cartoon about him and I was like, ah, oh, I think this is like pretty, like to me, this is funny. And I should just tweet this at Ken Burns. Why not? Yeah. Like, what's the worst that happened? And I tweeted it, and then he, and then he retweeted it, and then I got like an email from his um, production company being like, "Yeah, so we saw the cartoon, and uh, Ken wants to buy a print of it." That's amazing. Yeah, it, it was. This is one of the happiest things in my in my life. I think it's a true feather in your cap because you know what? Ken Burns hasn't bought shit from me, so exactly good for you. <laughs> yeah <laughs> sell ken bird what can we sell the ken birds <laughs> we can send him i don't know the uh whatever doesn't make the podcast the preamble that we had perhaps about ken burns exactly <laughs> before we get into it congratulations are in order my friend you got engaged mazel tov oh thank you thank you so much your wedding is not um, this yeah. year is it no, no. Luckily, just by like coincidence, we were like, okay, we think like not this summer, but the next one. And yeah. we started talking about planning stuff, but now that's kind of, it's like, well, it's sort of hard to think about planning now. I mean, wedding planning is hard because everything turns out to be way more expensive than you anticipate. Sure. Till, and so I'm like, well, let's just do it now and like do it on Zoom. It's pretty affordable. <laughs> Um, How's that pitch going? Yeah. Is, is she in? <laughs> yeah. um, well, that, that's one. I, the other idea is just to show up at like I, I was been rack, racking my brain for affordable wedding ideas, and uh, I mean, she's on board with affordable. Maybe not that level of affordability. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, what? Well, the, my current other idea is that you go to someone else's wedding, mm. and then you say like, hold on, the ceremony ends. You're like, hold on, everyone, we're all set up. Yeah. Why don't we just go? <laughs> Steal someone's thunder. That's a good idea. Just go right after them. <laughs> I have to know, does your fiance know that in a past life you were one of these pickup artist types teaching men how to get women? I mean, you had a whole podcast about this back in that's, 2013, that's an right? Extremely, that's an extremely inaccurate <laughs> characterization. 
I had I had a podcast where I talked to um, mostly female comedians um, with just more like questions about um, that sort of like maybe came from a more uninformed like male perspective. I was sort of, it was sort of like um, and obviously it's not on the internet anymore. If anyone so no one can verify this, but yeah, um, you wiped it, you wiped all traces of that podcast. <laughs> off the internet except for one place and I will tell you where yeah. that was after the fact but please continue so you listened to it and yet you mischaracterized it <laughs> <laughs> wow are you, are you throwing accusations at my interpretation skills my comprehension exactly of media yeah. I'm defending myself <laughs> um no, the the idea was it was like oh like remember how dumb I was as like a teenager why don't I sort of ask questions like that um and um yeah and it was just like and it did it for i think maybe almost a year but it wasn't really it wasn't about picking up women it was more about kind of not being a dumb guy with respect to women um yeah my fiance does know that i think she wants to hear it um i don't think she has i think i might have them on a hard drive somewhere um I came but, across it on like mm-hmm. a pickup artist site. Really? Yeah, like I was searching for it. I knew I had some intel on you, so I was looking for it. Googled it. It's nowhere on the internet. And then there was this one site that kind of had the right words, and it was you. It was your podcast. And I clicked on it, and the first thing that showed up was like, "Dudes, are you trying to score the girl of your dreams?" <laughs> and I had to click through that. And then wow. all it had was your intro music. It didn't have a full episode, oh, so I've never oh, heard yeah, it myself. Which is great. The intro music's great, by the way. <laughs> um, it has vocal harmonies and glockenspiel. Yeah. Uh, but um, that's that's news to me. That pickup artists, like I, I think I like because there it it did like okay in terms of like picking up a little bit of a following, but it wasn't ever. And then like I think I got some like maybe with some people who added me on social media i may have been like i didn't really look into who they were <laughs> maybe there's a bit is a bit uh suspicious but i pick up being a pickup artist is all about like not at all understanding women and just deciding that magic is what gets them <laughs> right it's, a, it's like whereas the idea of this podcast was like oh let's have like you know i had a co-host um who was a lady and then also, then we'd have on usually it was usually female comedians and just sort of like you know i like let's talk about like public displays of affection mm. or like you know breakups or things like that and just like uh here are my weird ideas about it like tell me why i'm wrong right i feel like i need a covid crisis version of this podcast right now because being a single dude and i feel like for all single people your dating lives are just like on hold indefinitely right now yeah I, I think i'm curious to know what you're like how you feel about it as a single guy because i think everyone it's 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 a very odd it's like we've all been um i don't know like frozen or trapped and we all have our own challenges like mm-hmm. being single you're on your own i mean with with us i we like okay in being in a serious relationship where you live together all of a sudden like this balance that you have of like okay here's like our kind of weekly routine here's how much time we spend together it like and like we started working from home and then it's just like that whole balance is upset oh for and sure yeah i think a lot of people in relationships have to like refine and I'm sure it's the same being single in terms of like you're going out and meeting people. And then also there's people with families with kids who are just like, oh, my God, it's so hard to have kids right now. Yeah, You know, as a single person, I'm somewhat optimistic. I feel like once we come out of this crisis, it's going to be a bull market for single people. There's going to be a lot of breakups. <laughs> yeah. uh, it'll, yeah. it'll be a divorce great Divorce lawyers are just waiting. <laughs> like they're just you're a divorce lawyer right now. Get your website. Get your social media presence going. <laughs> I did have this conversation with a friend because we're we're both single and he was saying yeah. that he is going on first dates on FaceTime. Like so you'll meet someone on an app and then he's doing the FaceTime Google Hangout first date. Mm-hmm. And that just seems so weird for me. I don't know, maybe I'm insecure. I'm just not thrilled with the medium and I asked him how it went and he said, "Yeah, it's super awkward. It's not great." He's yeah, like it's better just to talk on the phone. 
Yeah, I think um, I've always found video chatting hard because you can see someone's, you're not in person, but you can see their face. Yeah. And so it's just a bit easier to focus on audio. But like we, we found like we've been video chatting with friends, like kind of going on couples dates. And <laughs> and it's it's weirdly more draining. Like it takes away more energy than hanging out in person. Maybe. Yeah. I, don't, I, haven't, th- I, don't, I haven't thought about it. And I don't know why yet, but that's one thing we've noticed about it where it kind of takes more out of you and you have to focus more. Mm-hmm. Are you yawning? Um, Are you bored already? Yeah, What's happening yeah, no, here? I, just, I said I had a yawn coming out uh, <laughs> as I was talking. We're like 15 and I was like, minutes oh. in. Come on, man. I know. Well, I don't know. It was, it was you're some talking sort of, about your, your couple's dates look, and you're yawning. <laughs> it was a yawn or it could have been a burp. I don't know what it was exactly. Air was coming out and I decided to finish the sentence. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, well, you know what? We're moving on. More pressing than your sordid past of being a pickup artist and and more pressing than my lonely present. As someone whose primary job it is to entertain scores of people, how are you coping with the new reality of social distancing and self-isolation? Well, that's a good question. Um, As someone who is never a pickup artist ever (laughs) in any way... Just putting that back on the record. Um, I do not support or condone any sort of artistry that involves um, any kind of upping. Uh, so, yeah. No, well, initially, like I think every a lot of performers and and stand up comics, especially when we've been doing it for a while, you have this fantasy of like taking time off mm-hmm. and of just not like because. There is this weird duality of like, oh yeah, we like performing so much, but then you have a sh- oh, I have a show tonight. Crap, I got to go there and say these things I've said so many times. Um, and especially after just recording an album, like I was really working hard on that material. I've done it so much. Mm-hmm. It's sort of nice to take a step back, but that w- that's worn off in the last few weeks because I think I feel like what a lot of other people have felt where your our lives have all been constricted. Yeah. And there's all these things you do that make you feel like you and you can't really do them anymore. Mm -hmm. And I miss, you know, I really miss going out and hanging out with other comedians and doing shows. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, like the kind of like the, the honeymoon phase is over. Yeah. And it, it is interesting because everything changed so dramatically and the days feel long but it happened so quickly, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, it, it's weird, like, thinking back to a few weeks ago. Like, the, the one thing that's that's hard about it is that I think, like, we're in a minefield right now. And I am not a psychologist. Um, I'm, like, a pseudo-everything or, like, armchair everything. But um, we're in, like, a minefield of cognitive biases where, like, they're so apparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, like, one of the main things... Um, which I've been saying way too much to people is that like the human brain is hardwired to understand like linear processes, but we're very bad at understanding anything that's exponential. Sure. Yeah. And so this whole thing is exponential and it's like so hard to wrap your mind around even like, and I went into it with this attitude of thinking what is going to happen is going to, I'm, it's going to be hard to anticipate because it's going to be exponential. Yeah. And even then, I have, like, even though I thought, like, I'm going to underestimate how fast this is going to go, even then I was surprised at how fast everything changed. Hmm. Even though I was, I was like, self-aware, but still, it was like, oh, wow, I can't believe we're at this point already. Yeah. Um, it's weird. I know. We think back to, like, a month ago, and, like, I think a month ago, we were going around, like, we, we you know... Like my fiance and I made our own hand sanitizer because everything was sold out, and then we we're like, "Wait a second, it's just like alcohol and aloe vera, <laughs> right?" Yeah, yeah, it's not that's not that hard. That's why all these distilleries and breweries started making yeah. them right away. It's very easy. And so, and, and we were—I remember going around thinking, like, "Okay, let's get in the habit now of just kind of washing hands and that, being more." careful Mm -hmm. but i just remember being the attitude of like okay we're gonna keep like traveling around and going to work and stuff yeah yeah i didn't anticipate this level of you know how much it changed and how much it makes you feel different 
The first weekend of March, and I'm probably going to get crucified for this, but whatever, I'll be honest. The first weekend of March, I went to a movie <laughs> because yeah. a Parasite was still running and a friend of mine had not seen it. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, we have to go watch this movie and I don't know when you'll be able to see it because yeah. things are going to shut down soon. And, and now we're all that guy in Parasite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird, ominous prediction. Yeah, I think like well, I remember going the first weekend of March. I went to, I did a spot, the last spot I did at a, at a comedy show. Yeah. Um, a fellow comedian, John Cullen, friend oh, of mine. Oh, alumni yeah. of alumnus yeah. of This Is Van Cullen. Alumnus of alumnus of this podcast. He was recording his album. I remember going and being like, oh, I'm shocked at how many people are at the comedy club mm-hmm. uh, listening to this. And are out, and I was like, and I, I was a bit more weary at that point. I was like, well, I'm not trying to kind of try to avoid crowds and whatnot. Partly because I just figured that things would get worse. I should be in the habit now, yeah, of being cautious. But it, it's so crazy to think of like, yeah, it, it was nothing had really happened yet. We were people were weary, but um, yeah, you 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 can't imagine losing like the normal parts of life until you lose them yeah so based on what we've seen aside from being unable to comprehend things on an exponential level what does this crisis say about ourselves because i didn't realize that in the throes of the apocalypse we'd be hoarding toilet paper and making bread so much bread making. right yeah i mean it's like i i feel like people I wonder if like I wonder if people who sell like cocaine are labeling it as flour, you know. <laughs> That's yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It turns out everyone wants to be a baker. I think that I think that what we're just the, the most immediate thing I think you discover is that how much now it's becoming apparent like how much you appreciate just small so how important small social interactions are. Mm-hmm. Just like going out with a friend, just chatting, going on a walk. Yeah. Um, how important, like, you know, just uh, having your own time and, you know, yeah, I guess th- that balance of life. And then also that when we're in the, you're in these situations, all of a sudden, I think everyone's going to comfort food now, right? Yeah. Where, like, like, I know we had a supply of food and we ate all the mac and cheese first. <laughs> like, it was just all mac and cheese all the time. <laughs> was it Katie? Because you can hold yeah, on to Katie I, for a while. Yeah, and then, but also too, like all of a sudden that we've gone from like I don't know if other people maybe this is just our experience or how I think, but we've gone from thinking like healthy equals like organic and um, you know not like vegetarian or non gluten whatever to all of a sudden like healthy is calorie rich, right? Right, like like. Like, what food is the dentist that we can bring home? <laughs> I don't know if we're thinking that consciously. I'll be honest. I am I have an extreme diet right now because the food that I'm preparing at home is very clean. It's very healthy. But I'm getting takeout all the time. I'm in a, oh, okay. pos- I'm in a position of privilege right. where I can get takeout all the time. So I am eating, like, pizza and burgers a couple times a week oh, now yeah. where I wasn't before. But the right. stuff that I am making at home, it's still just like tofu and kale and right. whatever else, right? So I think that when you have when other pleasures are gone, all you have left is food, <laughs> yeah. and so then you start putting a lot. Like I think, yeah, it's it's hard to not put a lot on what you're eating and mm-hmm. just saying like, yeah, I'm gonna order like like I had a, I had a, um, uh, I broke three layers of kosher root last night. I don't even uh, know what that is. Of being kosher. Oh, being so kosher. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm not yeah. kosher. I'm not kosher. But if you really want to not be kosher, what you do is you eat a bacon cheeseburger on Passover. Because <laughs> it's like you're not supposed to have bread. You're not supposed to have milk and meat. You're not supposed to have bacon. And that's what you so, did. Oh, yeah. Good for you. Did you enjoy it? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, it was It was so good. Like, like, it, it was great. And it, 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 but it... It has more of an importance now of having because you're like, well, I've been stuck at home, you know. There, are th- there's things that are kind of nice about that. Like it's nice to just be able to not feel the pressure to do other things. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I, I feel like we're putting a lot more on food. Like I've gone, I've started buying certain things. Like I love cheese. I love it so much. And I try to like be careful about the amount of cheese I buy normally because I will just eat it. And <laughs> and now you don't care. You're balling out of control. And now, yeah, with now the I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm like, it doesn't matter anymore. Like there's no limits on cheese anymore. <laughs> One one thing that I feel like we're realizing, and maybe this has a role in informing our gluttonous sides or our self-indulgent sides, perhaps, is that all these man-made institutions that we have are super fragile. Like, we've created these systems of capitalism and this healthcare institution, but they have, like, a really low capacity to be overrun and overrun very easily by something that we can't even see. I mean, this disease is not even something that dooms every infected person to death, but enough. But if enough people are infected with it, it completely overruns our institutions within a short period of time. And when you look at the chaos it's created, there's economic chaos, obviously, but then there's, there is a social chaos. Like, there's not people rioting on the streets, but we've completely upended the way we used to live and interact with each other. And I think it, I don't know, I, I feel like it's informing us, like, all of this is kind of illusionary and yeah. it's very fragile. And I almost wonder if we were arrogant in thinking that the end of humanity was going to come from Donald Trump, like one man, <laughs> yeah. or or if we were just foolish, even in thinking that these systems of labor and capital, you know, couldn't provide us all with housing and healthcare and basic necessities, when clearly political will is mobilizing to ensure that everyone or as many people as possible are safe. I think that you know it, it brings to the fore that one there's other value trade offs that like we use that you know there are other things that we value that don't get explicitly valued, but there's like right now where it's like well, you know there's a huge cost to having our medical system being overrun, mm-hmm. and you know we there is that we do place a high value on human life and we do have a value we do have certain morals and ethics about like well we don't most of us think that we shouldn't live in a society where people are more vulnerable for no fault of their own. Right. Um, I think that's an important moral stance to have, but I, there's a tension, right? There's a tension in, well, I think in maybe our overall socioeconomic systems between planning and like having a machine that just, you know, works. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's like, oh, do we need? Do we really need to like think and have kind of arbitrary plans about things, or can we design a system that's like, you know, like capitalism, uh, or you know, this idea of the free market, which I think is a really weird, flawed idea, because like, what is a free market? Like, there's no such. There, there's no market that doesn't have rules. Right. Exactly. It's just, it's just not possible. So, yeah. but we have this like platonic ideal of oh we we can set up this system and then no one has to do any planning a lot of transactions happen and we get the best outcome yeah and this is an example of how those systems can't account for every possibility and you have these like you know that you there's a value to resiliency the problem is that the value of resiliency right isn't apparent until you have a crisis like right now Mm -hmm. and then you're like oh yeah, it would be wor- like in order to avoid this like, you know, economic calamity, it would be worthwhile to be more prepared for something like this. Yeah. But, you know, I think like it's like capitalism or or I don't I don't want to say broad like our version of capitalism that, you know, lacks better planning, let's say. Um, you know, it's it's like that thing with animals where like it only see like or or I mean, like I was trying to think of a metaphor like I think like snakes like they they think that if they can't see you then you're not a threat right 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 like you don't exist if they can't see you and it's yeah. sort of like our system it's like well if there's if something isn't apparently out there then we don't need to worry about it yeah and, and I think it's a, becoming apparent to more people right especially yeah. when we talk about things like 
healthcare, housing insecurity, all these different things are now becoming quite apparent to, you know, broader swaths of the population. But there were always marginalized communities that faced those insecurities, right? Yeah, I think we need... um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may not be... It's funny, I was talking with my um, uh, good friend of mine, um, another fellow comic here, uh, Abdul Aziz, and he's like, he is... um, He was... I, he may have been born in Canada, but he kind of split time as growing up between here and Egypt. Okay. His family's Egyptian. And so he was an immigrant. And so he is like, you know, he was grew up in Hamilton and was like, and had, you know, if, you know, the experience of being like an outsider in Canada. And he was like, I'm not surprised by this, like at all. Cause like, yeah, you're an immigrant. You expect things to go wrong. You know, like we're, we're, <laughs> depends where you come from. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it depends. And like, and, there's a certain I mean, trust I, that you have in yeah. institutions depending on how you were brought up. Yeah, I haven't faced like a ton of adversity in my life. I mean, I grew up Jewish in a time when it, in a place where it's fine to be Jewish, but we've always had this idea of like, okay, let's learn about all the things that went wrong in the past right. for us. And then you're very aware of like, oh yeah, things could go really haywire really easily. It's kind of drilled into you. Yeah. Um, especially when you learn about the Holocaust. And so my... And so part of me in my head is like, yeah, it's like, of, of course, of course things can go crazy. Like, of course things go wrong. Um, I think maybe some other people, if you, if that wasn't drilled into you and you don't have, a, you know, that perspective, then this is a bit more shocking. Yeah. So you're, you're pretty well versed in history and politics. And I guess when we are experiencing this black swan event, I'm curious what you think in terms of its uniqueness is this unique or is this a non-unique circumstance to human <laughs> um, civilization well i, I want to say that i'm i'm well versed in politics and history for a stand-up comedian <laughs> not for a uh, <laughs> someone who has multiple degrees in politics and history um but if, I don't listen, think it's if, that, if I really thought yeah. that you were well versed in politics and history, we <laughs> yeah. would not be talking about pickup artists. So uh, <laughs> I completely understand. Another th- <laughs> another thing, I am not well versed in and disagree with strongly. <laughs> yeah, you seem to want to go back to it. Um, Just gonna remind everyone. Yeah, I denounce. I denounce <laughs> that website. I denounce it in the most categorical of terms. Um, so. Just because I had catchy theme music on my podcast, okay. Um, so I I don't think it's that unique. I think that like facing infe- the scourge of infectious disease is one of the most like common denominator human experiences possible. And I also think that like the idea of idea of de- dealing with a threat mm. that you did not see coming is so common yeah. in human history, like. I, I like to me this is like the people you know you know the Anglo-Saxons in like um, I don't know the exact date of this but like before they like, were just like in their town on the coast of England and all of a sudden like a longboat shows up yeah and there's Vikings and you never knew they were Vikings <laughs> and now they're you know and they're killing and doing horrible things to you like yeah. that's like like a, like a lot of history was like oh like you know. Oh, the Mongols are here. We sure. didn't know they were a thing until now. I mean, this colon- the colonization of this entire continent and hemisphere, yeah. I guess, right? Who knew? No one knew. Like, yeah. you know, everyone has been deal- like, dealing with, like, kind of, like, with these things. Or, like, and then it's the same thing with, like, you know, people knew what plague was and disease, but no one knew what was causing this mm-hmm. for so long. Uh, I mean, like... And the 1400s, like, you know, syphilis showed up in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> like, no one knew, no one understood where it came from or what it was, but there's like, oh, crap, we have to deal with this now. But I think what's unique about this current crisis, and I agree with you to a certain degree with, with everything you just said, but I think what is kind of unique, and I know that this is breaking it down into very uh, simple terms, because like you... I am well versed in history and politics for a certain category, but not, yeah. you know, ultimately. But, but I think in simple terms, the idea that someone ate a bat or, you know, got infected by wildlife in one country 
And then within a matter of days, that infection has spread to literally every country. I think that is quite unique because we've never had an integrated globalized world in terms of trade and communication up until this point. Yeah, I think like the speed could be, but then again, everything moves faster in our world. So it may it may be faster in absolute terms, but like in how we perceive it, right. you know, people like the Spanish flu spread pretty quickly, you know, through ship and train travel. And that must have felt pretty fast for people at that time. But I mean, I, I think the one interesting thing is like global supply chains and... You know, that we haven't faced a problem like this where we're really seeing the weakness of that. And mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, we don't produce anything like medical equipment here. Yeah. And we don't produce... And how much of our food supply is produced in our own country? That, or just pharmaceuticals, medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, like, it's definitely exposing that because then all of a sudden... Well, because you have like this... like There's like a certain fantasy to the globalized world where it's like, oh, we can all be connected and work together. But then... You know, when shit hits the fan, countries are like, we're protecting our country. Our yeah. country is more important than you. Yeah. Like, we don't care. Yeah. You know, it's like people, and it makes you think of, I mean, the last, I don't know, decade, it's made me, um, you know, how in like international relations, there's different theories of how countries interact. Like, there's, um, yeah, there's like the Hobbesian real anarchy like the, theory, and yeah. Well, there's like realism and then there's like, is it liberalism, which is liberalism is the idea that we can create sort of a working international order. And mm-hmm. then realism is the idea that every country really is kind of in it for its, them, itself. Yeah. And we have to, and, that, and that's how you have to analyze everyone's actions on the global stage. And I've become more of a subscriber to that. And I think, and there are these, I think we want to, we, we hope that there aren't these like magical border lines that make people different in this area versus this area. We're all humans. Mm-hmm. We can all get along, but there's like, I don't know, there's intangible parts to national identity. I think like, it's like, the, it's like that with the Eurozone where this idea like, oh, we're all Europeans, you know, for, you know, we let, you know, let's forget about the last couple, you know, <laughs> that. <laughs> Well, your European thousand years European integration right? has sort of waxed and waned over several different periods, right? Obviously, the eurozone was the most ambitious project. Where you're right, it was taken on with a lot of euphoria. Of we're all Europeans, and then suddenly, the backlash from that was ultranationalism in a lot of different parts of Europe. Yeah, well, what I'm saying is that people still like they still see themselves as German. Or Italian, and there's different things wrapped up in those national identities. Like Germans are still very upset when other people are like don't save money, right? <laughs> and it, it, it's just hard. It's it's like hard to kind of rectify that or get you know, the, those national identities. I think still mean a lot. It doesn't mean that you have to have. I think one of the symptoms of that is the emergence of ultra nationalism. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's but that I think. The problem is perhaps this optimism that we can, you know, we don't actually have to consider these national, like they're inconvenient. It's like, well, really, you know, it's sort of silly to see yourself as belonging to one group versus another. Right. But people do. Yeah. And their culture is a real thing. Yeah. You know, like, like <laughs> you think of like, you know, it's like Germany in World War II, like was bombed into oblivion. And same with Japan. And like South Korea was destroyed in the Korean War. Like there, like certain countries, you know, were at points that are like at the same level as like a lot of developing nations. This is not to knock developing nations, but like you see that like how much of an economic expansion those countries had afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, culture... And like you know, institutions have a big effect. Then, sure, absolutely. Like you, like you can go from like no factories to like uh, you know, a really productive industrial economy. It really, de- it's like you know how organized you are. Yeah. Before we butcher international relations theories <laughs> and history too much, uh, I want I want to bring it back. 
<laughs> just a little we, bit. Both of us. We're both <laughs> oh, I'm, butchering oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm part of that. I mean, I'm not part of your, your sordid history, but I am part of the butchering of well, I don't know what you were doing. I'd like to compare our internet histories and see who's been a more pickup artist chat rooms. But you and I were, were chatting uh, last week, and you had a very pessimistic outlook about this whole crisis, about people staying home way longer than perhaps they think they have to stay home. I'm optimistic. I, I think I'm actually optimistic about some things with the crisis, like mainly I think that it does can bring out the best in people and in society when you're sure. facing a, a threat like this. Um, and I think it, it, it emphasizes the importance of certain institutions. I'm, I'm pessimistic about how long these measures will last and will last in some form. And I, I think it will bring out, you know, negative parts of human nature for sure. But I'm, I, the thing I'm more pessimistic right now is I think that we're dealing with, we're dealing with two crises. The first is like the the crisis of the virus mm-hmm. and this public health. It's like we have this public health crisis and I think it's really hard to argue that we shouldn't be taking, you know, I think we should be taking very strong measures now according to the public health authorities because like, and then we'll see how we can progress from this. Mm-hmm. I think that we, what we may need to do might be more than what people anticipate or it may be hard to enforce as time goes on because it's very hard to keep people away from each other. Yeah. Even I think that's you what you, it, were, you were telling me earlier, yeah. not on this podcast, but in our earlier conversation, that <clears throat> people are going to have to stay home for a lot longer than they think, probably through the summer. Yeah, I think people, and I think well, what's well, well, difficult, the difficult public policy decision is that to some extent, people are going to start bending the rules. Yeah. Like, you know, you're going to start saying like, well, I, I can't handle it anymore. I'm going to go see a friend. Yeah, and and then more, and people see other people bending the rules. And that's when that's when people cheat when they think that other people aren't following the rules. Right. So I don't know how practical it is to really like have a really strict physical distancing because at some point people are going to start skirting it. Um, and I think that you have to also give people a hope of moving towards normal life. Mm-hmm. Whereas, it, like, I don't know, how, it may not be politically feasible to tell people they have to live like this for many, many months. Um, but So you said I the mean, first problem is a, a public health problem, yeah. and then the second problem is it's a, more of a cultural problem, or? No, I think no, I think it's a very specific thing. It's unemployment. Right, yeah. And it's, so it's like the second crisis, which is, I think that there's a tendency, because for households, for sure, and I think I'm concerned that governments will react too much like this, but there's a tendency to cut back spending, right? Because we're going point, through dire dire point, circumstances. Yeah. We have to we have to cut back spending, and it's just that you look at the job numbers or the jobless claims in the U.S. in here. It's just like clearly a huge number of people are going to be unemployed, and I I mean I'm not I'm not a expert economist. Uh, I don't, but I think that like the more unemployment you have, like every time someone's unemployed. You know, there's a multiplier effect. Absolutely, like, yeah. Right? Like, you know, every employed person creates more jobs. And so having a little bit of... Un- having a lot of unemployment may have like a greater impact per person unemployed than having a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm very... Yeah, I'm very concerned about that that number of unemployed people is just going to be very high. And once you reach that point, it's like... It's really difficult for the economy because so many people are not going to be spending money and then you have people defaulting on various payments and loans and it's just i i worry that we're too focused on the immediate crisis and mm. not and then because there's a, there's always a delay in the economy right of how fast things happen yeah and that it, it makes me concerned that like the latest news um which is i think i can't remember what week things are happening but i think it was earlier this week or end of last week when when you're starting to see job cuts in the public sector Mm -hmm. and it's like the you know the logic is like well we don't want to be running all these empty ferries and you know the civic theaters in vancouver are closed and the library so we're going to lay people off or temper even or just put them on temporary you know leave unpaid Mm -hmm. and 
it's like, well, why would we spend money on nothing? And it's like, well, but we have to support people eventually anyway. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's like, you know, I'm worried about there being permanent layoffs and you have to like, and it's costly to rehire people. Yeah, and, and I think that's just it. There, as the more protracted this crisis becomes, the less likely there is going to be a V-shaped recovery. It's going to take oh, a long yeah. time to get everything going again. And I think where I'm also particularly curious, and maybe looking at this at a more micro level in terms of what you do, you know, how does this affect the local arts community <laughs> In yeah. Vancouver, specifically comedy and performative arts, because obviously we have been lo- we are looking down the barrel of months on end with no shows. I don't know what performers and artists are going to do. I don't know how venues are going to make do. I mean, this is a big threat to social cultural fabric of a city, right? Totally. I think that. I mean. I like I can't speak from this you know personally because my like I'm not entirely dependent on being an artist for um my income it's a part of my income um but I think that I'm sure that it's very difficult for people who are in that circumstance and anyone who has who's an artist and getting their full income from it is working very hard and has worked very hard to get to that place mm-hmm. and it's extremely difficult and uh, in Vancouver and in Canada to do that. And so I can't imagine how difficult it is for those people right now. And I hope that there are, you know, opportunities available. I know there are some, like the CBC set up a fund um, for things. I think that they're asked for people to produce things and there might be more grants. But I mean, aside from like the social and kind of like mental difficulties of not being able to do, you know, what you love mm-hmm. and what gets you money uh it's yeah it, it, it makes it already like the art the art scene in vancouver and i can mainly speak to comedy is a very tenuous place like it's sort of existing a bit like where it can it's really thrived in vancouver but kind of like in defiance of getting that much official support from the city like it's always shocked me that like vancouver has produced a lot of really really fantastic comedians Mm -hmm. and has like an amazing history of improv like you know colin mockery ryan styles were from like um theater sports Mm -hmm. i believe here or the improv scene like there's been such a strong amazing independent improv scene and all and then also you have like you know brent butt is based here yeah you know like ivan decker is here graham clark charlie demers erica sigurdsson there's so many great comics and like you know, Seth Rogen was doing stand up here. Sure, yeah. And and a lot a lot of people who have gone also to the states and um, had a lot of success. And yet, like, and, and it's like I'm I grew up in Toronto and I've lived here in Vancouver for the last decade, and I love Vancouver. And it always just shocks me because people feel this rivalry with Toronto. And yet I'm like I'm like well like you have a great comedy scene here why are you not supporting it yeah like or care like this is it always struck me as odd in Vancouver where it feels like they in order to have um, an art scene it's like we we have these like there's like a small theater scene and like you know we get like these touring shows from like when Broadway shows tour mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they come here and. It's like the the comedy scene is what's already happening. So why are you not like you're? you're try, I feel like sometimes Vancouver is trying to force certain things that aren't happening in the city, mm. and they're ignoring what's happening organically. Yeah. And, well, I think you're right. Ab- absolutely right about the talent that yeah. exists in Vancouver has come out of Vancouver, and even pre-crisis, you know, venues were shutting down. The comedy mix totally. shut down. I'm not sure what the status was with Little, Little Mountain Gallery, but that looked to be on the verge of shutting down. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was like Little Man Guy was always in a bit of a tenuous place because that it's in a property that was like, because a lot of the arts, to have an independent arts venue, you kind of can only afford a property that is probably about to be redeveloped. Right. Sure. And they're trying to get some return on it. And yeah. there's not much else that could be there. Yeah. But there's a huge value. Sorry. I had one of those yawns again. Um, <laughs> We're just talking about your livelihood. Yeah, it's fine. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but I mean, it was a challenge already. Do, do you think the arts community recognizes the challenge ahead? Because I think the fear should be, I mean, I'm saying this as an outsider, yeah. but the fear should be that when we come out of this thing, there are gonna, there's going to be no venues and a lot of people are yeah. going to have to move out of the city or move back in totally. with their parents or not pursue comedy or the arts. Is that yeah. is that fair to say? I mean, I'm saying it from the outside, but is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, I think there's like a, a pessimistic and an optimistic view of this. Well, hit me like, with what you think. Yeah. So what what I, well, I think that it's mo- it's it's bad because there are a few venues. Like another one is like the Kino Cafe, which is like, you know, they've been doing a co- the, the longest running comedy night in the city, and that's mm-hmm. like a place where comics go to work out material and like mm-hmm. You can't. What people don't realize is like, in what comedians have to develop somewhere, and you have to develop material somewhere, and you need these kind of regular shows plus you know you know a couple real comedy clubs to produce stand up and right. what people kind of the end product like. And if you lose those small rooms, then it's like goodbye comedy scene, and then you know like. You know, some people, not everyone enjoys to go to independent comedy shows, but you don't have people, you know, you then you don't have people, if you have a comedy club, you're not going to have the same quality of people and material there if you don't have those other rooms. Right. And like, it's like the Kino is like a place where like, you know, it's, it's hard to run like a bar like that in Vancouver. Taxes keep going up every year. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know property values go up so much so property taxes go up and it hits the tenants and not Mm -hmm. the landlords and you know you don't get any breaks for being a venue that has live performance yeah even though it has sort of like it adds value to the city so it's sort of like just because you even if like you know let's say we lose all our venues and someone and rent goes down and someone says okay it makes sense to open up a comedy club somewhere else in the city, mm-hmm. then you, it, it's not going to be the same if you don't have those other supporting rooms for it. Right. Like, like you need an ecosystem. And I think that, and then look, and it's like, it's nice to have professional comedians. It's nice to, that people have an outlet to try comedy, like to take improv, like if you want to do classes or learn how to do stand up or improv, like improv schools have been flourishing, like Blind Tiger at Little Mountain Gallery. They need a venue. They need mm-hmm. a place where they can do that. And I think that, that, you know, there's a real interest that people have in learning and being part of this community. Yeah, and all that could go away. So it is a ve- it is a very scary time for sure because there's just never been a lot of capital or resources put behind the comedy scene in this city. Yeah, and plus, like, and the liquor laws are so restrictive too. It's hard to have like you know venues. It's so it's like impossible to get a liquor primary. I think. And so otherwise, you want to have a venue that serves liquor or alcohol, you need to be a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you have to... Whoever's running that restaurant has to love comedy because if you're running... <laughs> and if you want to be profitable, you have to run a successful restaurant anyway. Yeah. And if you're doing that, why would you want to do comedy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know? So there, there's a few people who are, I, I think, who have been, like... Like, you know, Steve Allen at the Kino. I mean, Gary Yol, who uh, owns Yak Yaks, you know, who they're not in this to make a lot of money. They're kind of passionate about, um, running comedy venues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if with things becoming, it's, you can only be passionate so long, you know, you don't want to, then if you're broke, it's hard to be passionate. Who cares about passion? Sure. It's interesting because you're talking about this from obviously an insider's point of view and someone who's in that community. But I think even from the consumer end, Losing this scene for a lot of demographics in this city is quite devastating because comedy is actually a pretty cheap night out, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah, depends, how much, nice, yeah. depends how much you drink or whatever, but it's not expensive to go see a comedy show and to see different comedy shows, whether it's at Havana Club or Little Mountain Gallery or, or Kino, and you have like you know, yourself or Ivan Decker or Katie Ellen Humphreys or Dino Archie, even if they're doing 10 minutes or five minutes, like that's a pretty good, it's pretty good value for what you're getting. Totally. And isn't it nice to hear someone 
talk like live in this digital age where we're consuming everything through screens mm-hmm. like i don't think it's coincidence that there's been a stand-up comedy boom um and no i i think it, it people in vancouver go and watch live comedy more than in other cities like everyone comments about how like you know the comedy mix used to be like pretty full on a tuesday or sure. wednesday night yeah which was you know unseen in other places and so they're like, for some reason, like I, I learned about this when I first moved here and started doing comedy, like Vancouver, like weirdly people go out to shows and people really enjoy stand-up comedy here. And all you need for a stand-up comedy scene to flourish are these like, you know, small and medium-sized venues and they can be in places where most other businesses don't work. Mm-hmm. But like Toronto almost is like, and we'll see at the end of this crisis if this still exists, but they kind of have like an independent comedy like sector, like district where there's like a bunch of independent theaters all in the same area and i think that like a real question for you know there is like arts planning in vancouver and the question is like well how do you this is happening already how do you make it how do you help it flourish and don't impede it uh because not like otherwise the whole city is going to just going to be cactus clubs and like donnelly group yeah and it's you know they're there is a. It's one of those things where people you know, people would argue like, well, how much of a demand is there of it? And it's like, well, that the demand is a bit dependent on the supply. Mm-hmm. The more good comedy there is, and we're close to LA, you know, we do have a lot of American comedians who come up here, and we do have a lot of great Canadian comedians as well. Um, but the more supply there is of like good venues where you can, because in a comedy venue, you need sort of certain things to you need people to be focused on the show. You need a certain environment to make yeah. it successful. But the more of those you have, then the, then it's like, you just can have this like, you know, sum is greater than the parts. Like the scene can just be that much better. But if, you know, it's, it's so easy to lose that. And Vancouver was is like, was sort of on its way, you know, regardless of being a, a tough place, expensive place to live and a hard place to operate a bar on its way to becoming, you know, one of the main comedy centers in Canada. Hmm. Like there is a real pride in Vancouver comedy. Like there is a, I mean, there, there is an attitude of among Vancouver comedians that like some of the best in the country are here. Sure. And that we like, we can hold our own against any other comedy scene. Yeah. Um, in terms of quality. And, um, and so it'd be very sad to lose that or, or for that to be impeded. Um, especially out of that kind of this crisis, I think people will need to laugh and need to get together again. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and what better place than a, than a comedy yeah, club, right? I hope the, I hope those places are there. One, th- like I read an article, there's an article by, I think the TV critic, um, for the globe and mail. And it was years and years ago. I feel like it, it summarizes the attitude of Canadians where like, we've always been told that Canada has produced so many great comedians. Mm -hmm. And the article was sort of like, well, why isn't there like a John Stewart of Canada? This is back when he was doing the daily show. Right. And I think that the art, like the article, I don't remember what the conclusion was, but to me, it totally missed the point. And I think a lot of people, it's just, they're just kind of like, they don't understand this and why would they know this? But there's this, the reason why a lot of, you know, comedians like Canadian comedians become big in the U S and don't come out of Canada, like don't become huge in Canada right away. Or that we don't have like, we didn't have like a John Stewart or a Stephen Colbert or people kind of anchoring these shows in the same way is because to have comedians have to develop somewhere. Like you need a minor league to, to learn how to do comedy. Hmm. And we don't have the same like minor league system as the U.S. has. Right. Like, you just can't. It's just very hard to get to the point where you're can you're like touring around doing an hour of comedy, like f- you know, testing that hour in like fifty different places. Right. And then you record this fantastic special. So it's it's not a question of the talent not being here. I think that like can, Canadians almost have an advantage early on because we're you have that outside perspective mm-hmm. and people in Canada aren't as Im- people in the U S are weirdly impressed by entertainers. They love entertainers. And in Canada, people don't, we don't really give, we don't give people credit just because they're trying to entertain you. Um, so 
Canadian, I, will, you know, I will say I will say this, yeah. you know, and this goes back to that idea of demand as well. I think the demand is there. I think we have some great venues because I will discover shows that sound amazing and I've never heard of them and I'll go to them and they're packed and they're full. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like there's no one there. So well, it, it is interesting how you're talking about effectively like an institutional thickness of the comedy scene. Uh, which is a model. I mean, the way you're describing it, it's a model of how you look at innovation and healthcare or technology or whatever else, where you do need to have a diversity of firms. In this case, mm-hmm. venues and talent uh, that draw from each other, and they might be working competitively in one sense, but effectively, it's working cooperatively to grow the sector. Yeah, well, I think you need a platform. It's like with, you know, you can't have all these apps without smartphones existing. Yeah. And the same sense, it's like you can't, like, there's a lot of great ideas for comedy shows. There's a lot of bad ideas. But in order to find out which ones are the great ideas, you need a venue. You need a venue that, you know, people can, that's set up properly for a comedy, that people can go and they can, you know, it's people aren't there for other reasons and talking and you can focus on the show. It's like... A lot of venues are, are that people try to run shows in are not well set up. And comedy is very much about like the psychological framing. Like you need to have people's attention focused. You can't have distractions. And the thing that we might be losing and the thing that's always been tenuous is that platform. It's like I have thought for a long time like small venues are so important. Mm-hmm. And I know I haven't – I know that in the one – I think – this might not be in the newest version of Vancouver's cultural plan, but in the earlier one, they had, when they were talking about venue sizes, they had a category for venues that are zero to 400 people. And that to me is a big mistake because a 400 person venue is very different than a 50 person venue. And like a lot of, if you have, if if you're able to like um, allow there to be a lot of like 50 to two to like 100 person venues that, thrive that can thrive very cheaply like people can experiment with a lot of different types of show ideas there and then take mm-hmm. those to larger venues like the sunday service it was a great improv show and group that every sunday they do a, a, a sold out sunday show they used to mm-hmm. <laughs> they're doing it online now um which i highly recommend watching um and but they they were doing sold out shows every sunday at fox cabaret sunday night people yeah. you know and people were going out to it they started they didn't st- that's after like many many years yeah, they were they started yeah. in a in a small venue and it's and people need the chance to build like these things don't come out of nowhere mm-hmm. people have to build up you know like you know our friend Ivan Decker like he didn't just wake up you know decide <laughs> go to a comedy club and the next day he's on Conan yeah. and then he gets goes on Netflix like he spent you know like years and years and years working on this and in doing it and honing that material in like you know these rooms like the kino on a tuesday night with like 12 people in the audience yeah um so or or and then also at comedy clubs like the comedy mix and so well i hope that yeah you know whatever happens out of this crisis i feel like like any other economic sector the arts and cultural performative scene is going to be half is, is going to have to be rebuilt as well yeah and I, and I hope that in the rebuilding I mean the way you're describing it I hope that the city of Vancouver and other jurisdictions have that uh, plan and that recognition of how to build these scenes and as incentivize the totally. smaller venues the medium-sized venues as well in recognizing the importance here and as we've both kind of pointed out the actual demand that does exist whether you as an individual know about a show or not totally and the more the more venues there are the more like the more good shows there are the more demand will be created yeah absolutely so there needs to be a bit of a vision for what this could be um because it is and, and to me it's like look every city has different things that flourish and are parts of their identity and I think that you should you have to kind of take an honest look at what's already going on and what um, what kind of things have been successful in our city. And comedy has been very successful in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think, and then, yeah, it's like the one thing impeding it is not that it's not the talent, it's not the crowds, it's the availability of spaces, mm-hmm. and 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 it's like you know, and just having good quality spaces because comedy is like the, I mean, is best. You know, it's it's very different experience you going to see like a fifty person comedy show versus like, you know, a theater a show or yeah. over that. Yeah. You know, and yeah, you just it's those those venues are just so important. And comedy is great in that it's easy to experiment too with different shows. Like if you want to experiment with theater, you have to write a play. Hopefully, <laughs> I don't like I. I've you don't want to see that much experimental theater if they haven't like predetermined what they're going to do. Right. It's probably going to be a long ride. Um, <laughs> but with comedy, it's like there's a lot of opportunity to kind of like quickly figure out if something can work or not and to come up with innovative ideas for shows. And with a place like Little Mountain Gallery, like which and it's this is sort of how Comedy Bar in Toronto operates where like they just you book independent producers and mm-hmm. then people see other shows go and then eventually you have this lineup of just like stellar shows that people love yeah. because we figured we've kind of like figured out that evolutionary process of what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's working. Your, your comedy hour, your album (laughs) (laughs) that's working. Yeah. It's uh, (laughs) this conversation is not a great representation of my comedy has a lot more jokes. It has a lot more. I mean, we, we cracked a few at the start, but (laughs) And, I, and I'm sorry to have cut you off. We we just got to wrap it up here. But I do want to touch on your upcoming comedy album. I was there at the live taping. It was amazing. Thank you. Uh, seems like a perfect time in terms of social distancing to put out an album. I know. I know. My dad. <laughs> my dad is like, he's like, who like, it, he's like, I like, he's just been bothering me. He's like, you got to get the album out. I just figure like people are gonna listen to it. <laughs> Because everyone's at home, like you got to do this. Yeah. When can um, we expect to release? Um, I am. At the, I'm hoping in it within a few months, like that, but it'll be released by hopefully June of this year. Um, mm. I'm not. I haven't got an update on exactly what the timeline is looking like from the record company. I can say that the album is finished. Yeah. Um. So it's done. It'll be called uh, Horsepower. Two different words. Um. And if you go to and I'm sure there'll be a link to it on my website, but it'll be available on all streaming platforms. So yeah. on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen you're to not albums. Gonna go, you're not going to go full hipster with it post-COVID model in terms of just pressing it on vinyl and releasing it that way? Yeah, you know, we're releasing an exclusive release of 200 tape decks <laughs> hidden around the city. Uh no, it's going to be widely available. You can't. You don't want to put up any barriers to people listening to stand-up comedy. No, um, no. <laughs> it'll be available everywhere. I hope that you know it's still uh, relevant to people. Um, I'm pretty proud of it. I've, there's, I've, it's material I've worked on for many, many years, and I'm happy to get it in that form. Yeah. No, it's, um, it was fantastic. It was a magical night, and that was the first time oh, I met you. you in person. I think we were Facebook friends prior to that. But I think that was the first time I actually met you in person. I actually had seen you perform uh, before that night as well, but mm-hmm. that was the first time I had the courage to come up to you and say, hi, I'm Mo. <laughs> that was the first time I had the courage to receive you. <laughs> the other times it I takes ran- two, yeah. man. It takes two. Exactly. Remember, remember how that used to work, the meeting someone in person? Uh, yeah, you, remember that? <laughs> yeah, and you'd, you'd rub your hands together. And you so had taboo. No, yeah. And it no, yeah, it's the, the weirdest thing about right now is like my whole life I've been like every, with people who are germaphobes and hypochondriacs. I rolled my eyes at them. Yeah, and I'm like, they were right. Who's laughing now? <laughs> they were right this whole time. <laughs> them and people who play video games at home all the time. Yeah, there you go. Like people who would I, somewhere there's like a Venn diagram of like you know hardcore gamer germaphobe and then like survivalist and in the middle are the are the happiest people right now yeah they're like they're just they're playing their video games with a supply of purell and dried food that will last them you know three years jacob this has actually been very fun it's actually been very insightful i i had you on here because i wanted to talk about the comedy scene i wanted to get some analysis from you because you are a very insightful comic but everything doesn't have to be funny and i was really curious about Thank this you. scene because it means a lot to, it means a lot to me just as a fan 
Oh, that'll be my second album. Everything doesn't have to be funny. <laughs> Let's talk about something serious. Do you feel in any way that this conversation has picked you up? No. <laughs> no, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, I think it expands the horizon of what needs to be done in the city, right? Like, we obviously are talking about things like healthcare and housing and that sort of thing, but these things that are important to us as people who live here, as residents, these scenes require nurturing as well. And the idea that they're just going to come back as soon as, you know, this year of social distancing is over, I think is naive. And I think we it's important to recognize these scenes. I, fun fact, and, and we do have to wrap it up here, but fun fact, I We're had, never wrapping this up, man. <laughs> just keep me on indefinitely just like oh, this yeah. uh just like this keep quarantine talking so we can trace the call <laughs> <laughs> but fun fact i had my performative debut effectively postponed indefinitely because mm-hmm. i was gonna perform at sarah bino's teen angst night oh, and no. it all lined up yeah but um you know that that, that can wait that's fine you'll 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 do it i think i uh, will do it yeah yeah it's better to be hopeful at this point that You'll do it. You'll it'll it'll happen. Jacob, how do people follow you? How do they see your stuff online? Where do they go? Um, my uh my handles and everything are by Jacob Samuel, so B Y Jacob Samuel, and then I'm on Instagram. I have a lot of cartoons up there. Um and there might be some stories about my new puppy, um, if you are interested in that. <laughs> and um on same thing on Jacob Samuel on Facebook, other social media outlets. Um, but Instagram is the main one people should go to, especially cool. because that, that's where I post most things. Well, again, Jacob, I appreciate your time. I hope you and your fiance and your family stay happy and healthy. And I can't wait to see you on stage again. You know, I don't know when that's going to be, but uh, you are one of my new favorites in, in the city. So, I appreciate you and your time, and uh, I'd like to wish you a yeah. shalom as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, technically, technically right now, it would be Chag Sameach. <laughs> oh, right. We're recording yeah. in Passover. I don't know when yeah. this episode's going to come out, but um, happy Passover. But, oh, yeah, your point. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and um, I don't know. What can I say to you? What's your background again? What is Pakistani, your faith? Pakistani, so okay, is so, Islamic, so salam. It's very yeah, similar. Yeah, salam alechem. Yeah, valikum aslam. And but that's that's Arabic. That's not Urdu, right? No, but but all Muslims the same? still oh, okay. greet, greet each other in that way. Well, yeah. now I've learned. There you go. <laughs> so I um, also wish you to uh, go in peace. Oh yeah, so yeah, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I enjoy it very much. Um, I like the eclectic mix of guests you have. Well, I appreciate you being part of that tapestry. Thanks so much, Jacob. Okay. Take care. People, his comedy album, Horsepower, is coming out very soon. But in the meantime, you can check him out on CBC's The Debaters online. Just Google him for comedy clips. And he's also on Crave TV. He is Jacob Samuel. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.